You like this picture? It's kind of nice, isn't it, to see what he looks like. And that's, I think, a picture of him with his, shows you how open he was, and, and he was just a pretty amazing person. I love presenting on Thomas Merton. <coughs> However, this is a bit daunting. I'll fix that. <laughs> because there's so much to say about Thomas Merton. And uh, so little time to say it. And I do want to have time for you to uh, uh, ask questions, make comments, because some of you have probably read Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton died in 1968, <coughs> fairly recently, before some of you were born. But he still uh, comes from the world as we know it, pretty much. He lived in the military age. And he has a voice that I speak, think is timeless. And um, if you go to secondhand bookstores or almost any bookstore, Thomas Merton books are flying off the shelf. There's so much written, he wrote so much himself, and then so many books being written about him. And I'll mention tonight a couple that I would recommend if you want to read more about Merton. How many of you know a little bit about Thomas Merton? <coughs> okay. Good. The rest of you are fresh, and that's good, too. This was a wonderful introduction tonight. Um, I love the images of the songs that we shared. Be still and know that I am God. There was another one about sinking into the flame. wonderful introduction to Thomas Merton, who learned how to live with stillness and allowed that to transform him. <clears throat> Thomas Merton was through and through a monk. He um, lived under the rule of St. Benedict, which is the same rule that I follow. He was a Cistercian, a Trappist. They, were, they are um, the ones who follow the rule more strictly then uh, some of us, they, I think they kind of think that we're a little bit, um, what? The rest of the Benedictines are a little too moderate, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, we do follow the same rule, and we allow that rule to, um, to convert us. Anybody familiar with the rule of St. Benedict? <coughs> you can find all this stuff online if you're interested in looking it up. The oldest um, order in the Catholic Church, only the Catholic Church is older in Western civilization than the Benedictine order. Um, I am actually 1,500 years plus old, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind of a wonder that Thomas Merton became a monk. He was... Um, like a lot of saints, sinners who became saints, like Augustine and Paul and Magdalene, he was, found himself living a dissolute life when he was young. Um, he had a rather difficult upbringing. He was an orphan, orphan. His mother died at six, his father at 16. And uh, he had... Um, long-distance guardian who lived in New York City while he was in England, and uh, he kind of, you know, gave him over to the 
boarding schools to raise, and so Thomas Merton kind of, you know, that's where he, he lived, and he didn't learn a great deal of discipline. <coughs> he um, became the proverbial bad boy. He um, was a heavy drinker, a womanizer, and uh, he even alluded to the rumor that he fathered a child in England and he was only 19. Well, his uncle heard about this and went to England and scooped him up and brought him back to the US, to New York City, and he um, went to college at Columbia University. <coughs> and, um, <coughs> excuse me. Because Merton was so restless and he was such a genius and he had this searching spirit he needed to find a path and he began to find something of that path to integrity when he was in Columbia University he had this great hunger for meaning so he took every philosophy course he could he was already very interested in literature and he had professors who were interested in him. And they answered his questions, or they encouraged his questions. And so he, he began, at that moment, to begin to find meaning in his life. And um, before long, he had uh, converted from atheism to Catholicism. And he... Um, Within a few years, found himself at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, Trappist Monastery. And I think it was pretty broad-minded of the Trappist to take him in because uh, of his, because he really told everybody his story, his personal history. And one religious order had even turned him down because they were a little afraid of him because he had had such a wild youth. But the Trappists were kind of like, well, come on in, you know, you're like the rest of us. We'll all, we're all in this together. And uh, so he um, entered Gethsemane. And he, um, it was a perfect life for him because it allowed him the support for this journey to God that he was on. When he was in, in New York City, and this was a young man, remember, who's moving from atheism <coughs> trying to find meaning, and silence attracts him. He goes into the churches, Catholic churches in New York City, and he sits for hours and prays. And he begins to find God within himself. He begins to experience the intimacy that he has longed for all his life. And so when he entered the monastery, he felt like, for him, that was the best way he could live into that deep yearning he had for God. Everybody who knows Merton, knew Merton, says he was like an open book. You know, what you see is what you get. He was very honest, very candid, had a, um, they say, a really good sense of humor. I've heard tapes of him teaching the novices at Gethsemane, and he's laughing and cracking jokes, and everybody's having a good time. And when he went off to live on the grounds of Gethsemane, 
in a um, hermitage, some of his friends would come in and bring him, bring him beer. So he <laughs> had a taste of beer now and then. He knew how to enjoy life. And he even said at one point, he said, I love life. I love beer. I love God. <laughs> and uh, he just, you know, was that kind of person. <clears throat> and uh, one of the greatest learnings for Thomas Merton, and I think this is really essential to know how this man, what really inspired him and what really motivated him, was that he knew God loved him unconditionally, passionately. He knew he was cherished by God. This man who had lived such a wild youth somehow came into that. And um, <clears throat> he had many, much cause to rue his former life, you know, the weaknesses that he had uh, displayed, how the messes he had gotten into. And he knew he was probably right on the brink of getting into trouble again at any time, which was why he liked the support of the monastery. But especially what kept him centered was his realization of God's mercy. He knew that without the grace of God, he would never, he would still be back there, living this meaningless, life, this miserable life. And um, I think when I, I, today I went back and read the prologue to the Rule of St. Benedict because I thought I'd like to do that just because I, I kind of want to put myself in the mindset of, set of Thomas Merton who came to the monastery and would have heard that mm -hmm. the first time and what that would have meant to him. And I think he must have found great comfort the imagery of the prologue to the rule of St. Benedict is based on the prodigal son. You know, the reprobate who comes back, and what does the father do? He doesn't make him a servant. He doesn't say, you should have done this. What does he do? He puts the ring on him. He puts the cloak on him. He loves him. He just embraces him tremendously. And that's the way Thomas Merton felt. So when he heard those opening lines of the rule, Listen, my child, to the words of a father who loves you. The labor of obedience will bring you back to the one from whom you departed. Obedience in the rule means basically listening. Listening is how one comes back, how one stays there. And not only did he find himself being drawn back, but he found himself already there in the love of God, being so cherished by God. Um, and, you know, in spite of all of his illusions and all of his limitations, he, uh, he could accept that love. Maybe because he was so wounded and so limited and had suffered so much from his own foibles, because of, certainly through, those experiences. Because he kind of felt like, well, who could love me, really? I've used people. I've dissipated my life. I've lived a meaningless existence. 
but he experienced in the silence the God who received him back with no qualifications and who said, okay, you're here. Now this is the way to live this life fully. And that's how he experienced the monastery. I want to read you a quote from Merton. <clears throat> This is how he describes himself. This is how he describes himself at the end of his life. <clears throat> Excuse me for my voice. I've been croaking all day long today. This was when he was about, 50, he died when he was 53. So this would have been 50 years old maybe, 51. I had become convinced that the very contradictions in my life are in some ways signs of God's mercy to me if only because someone so complicated and so prone to confusion and self-defeat could hardly survive for long without special mercy. Can any of you say that about yourself? I certainly can. How do we survive the confusion we're living with, all the things we do to defeat ourselves? How do we survive that? By special mercy. You may be familiar with Thomas Merton's prayer that is probably, if you know Thomas Merton, it, it may be your favorite prayer of his. Lord God, I don't know where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I do not know if what I am doing pleases you, but I do know that my desire to please you does please you. And so I trust that you will lead me on the right road, even though I may know nothing about it. That was the assurance he had of God's love for him. And uh, I think because he had this deep sense of God's receiving God's unmerited love, it helped him realize how much all the rest of us are loved that way too. James Finley tells a, a lovely little uh, story that came from Merton, um, which I think describes us. Merton said, you know what we're like? We're like someone who's been given a beautiful house, a beautiful mansion full of all kinds of wondrous things. But instead of living in the mansion, we're living in the backyard. We go to look in through the windows and we look at this wonderful mansion and we look at all the beautiful things and we say, wouldn't it be great if I could live in that mansion? And the illusion is that we are not in the mansion. The reality is we are in the mansion. We've been given it all, but we feel like we're looking in from the outside. Doesn't it feel like that a lot of the time? We could only get in that beautiful place. Um, one of Merton's, uh, I think what I would say was probably his watershed mystical experience happens when he's, um, he's been in the monastery quite a few years and uh, he goes to the doctor 
in Louisville. And when he goes to Louisville, things really shift in his life. You know, he'd been living out there in the monastery, this place where all these holy people were living. And he said, I kind of thought like, you know, the people who are out there outside the monastery must be living meaningless lives. They must be really far away from what's important. But that shifted for him at the corner of 4th and Walnut. He's on his way to the doctor, and he's standing on the corner in the middle of the shopping district. And he says, I saw all these people walking around, shining like the sun. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach. I saw who each one is in God's eyes. I saw them as God sees them. If only they could see themselves that way, as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more greed. I suppose the biggest problem would be that we would be falling down and worshiping one another all the time. So I guess we'd get nothing done if we could really see each other as we really are, would we? That was Merton's, that was the window opening into the reality that we are all so loved by God. The illusion is we're trying to get that love. We're working toward it. We're trying to earn it. We're trying to do all the good things, <clears throat> castigating ourselves because we're not making it. But all the time, there is within us this great treasure of God with us. <clears throat> and um, I think uh, for Merton, I think this was really a galvanizing experience because it helped him see how everybody should be received and how any and with that great reverence he believed that people should not be treated badly there should be no war because we are all sacred vessels of the divine <clears throat> and i think this was the great impetus behind his his um, work for justice <clears throat> and he did become quite a prophet. He was very sensitive to the evils of racism. He was a personal friend of uh, John Howard Griffin, who had, I don't know if you know the story of John Howard Griffin, he had colored his skin black and w went through the South learning what it was like to be African American. He had correspondence with Dr. Martin Luther King and other leaders in, in the movement. So he was fairly, you know, he's very sensitized to that and very involved in that. He was aware of the horror of war. His own brother had died in the Second World War. He had been really wounded by that. And um, he, um, what happened with Thomas Merton, I think, that made him such a great prophet was his writings. He wrote a lot, many essays that he wrote to bishops, he wrote to 
senators, he wrote to all kinds of people about the evils of war and the evils of racism. But what really made an impact on the, the, peace, uh, the peace and justice movement in Thomas Merton's life was his meeting with young radicals and young activists. John and Philip Berrigan, whom you've probably heard of, Jim Forrest, Rosemary Radford Ruther. He had lots of correspondence with these people. He was writing letters back and forth all the time, and he would invite them to come and live with him for a week or so and make retreat. Spent lots of time talking with them. And what Thomas Merton taught them was that you can't be an activist if you're not also a person of deep prayer. In fact, he says it's dangerous to be an activist if you are not praying. If you're out there on the picket lines and you are demonstrating and you're doing all of that and you're doing uh, civil disobedience, he said, you cannot do that unless you are centered in God. Because it's so easy for us, for our own ego desires, to get involved in that. Um, it's easy for us to want our own way. And um, if we don't get our own way, I would certainly like the President and the Congress to listen to me. I would like them to read my letters. I would like them to listen to my phone calls. And I would like them to change some of their ideas. I get a little disturbed when they don't seem to read my letters. <laughs> At least nothing seems to happen. But Thomas Merton says, you know, we really need our activism this tendency we have to stand up for what's right, we really need that purified by deep prayer. Our ego needs to be out of it. Years ago, I was, I was involved in a lot of things, um, social protests, etc. And the uh, best thing that ever happened to me was that I got, I ended up with burnout. I just was... I just had to give it up for a while. But it was such an important thing for me because I realized I was going at this whole project of changing the world with my own limited ego resources. And that's what Thomas Merton was telling these young people they couldn't do. We cannot deal with the evils of this world with our own human abilities. It's way too big for us. It's really God's project. We need to give it over to God and work at it as if it is God's project and not just ours. I wanted to read you a quote here about uh, what he says about nonviolence. I think this is really powerful. Nonviolence or social protest is not for power but for truth. It is not pragmatic. It is not aimed at immediate political results. 
Nonviolence does not say we shall overcome so much as this is the day of the Lord and whatever may happen to us, he shall overcome. It's God's project. I understand that you are, this is supposed to be conversation and I've been doing a lot of talking. So <laughs> if you have some questions or comments you'd like to make, otherwise I can go on and on. Yeah, I'd be curious to know if Thomas Merton himself ended up out on the same uh, picket lines and things that a lot of these uh, young activists uh, that he was drawing to his own community uh, if he was joining them out on the lines or if he was largely operating from within the monastery? Good question. He uh, was a monk uh, and he did not leave the monastery except for urgent matters. His involvement was much more through his writing and through his work with uh, other people, trying to, to talk to other people, trying to um, talk to them about why they're in this. So I think it was his influence in that way that was more important. He did not get out on the picket lines and Rosemary Radford Ruther said, why don't you come out here and get involved? And uh, he said, you know, my life is a life of solitude. But my solitude is really for all of you out there and I think he had a strong sense that him being centered himself was his vocation to help with the work. That was his justice work, to be a person of deep prayer. Because, you know, as Christians, we do believe that our prayer has an effect, don't we? We give it to God and let God work through us. And I think that was Merton's, pretty much his stance. Um, he, um, he also, I think, was uh, really helpful in helping these <coughs> young people who he was working with, and I think it's really helpful for us too, is to, to receive our prayer as a way to purify our motives, to purify all of those ego, all those ego fixations we have. Thomas Merton felt, he had a wonderful phrase, I love this, he says, our life as contemplatives and as prophets is to unmask the illusions. In prayer, we unmask those illusions about ourselves. Um, any of you who've done centering prayer or have engaged in a contemplative practice knows that it isn't all sweetness and light, is it? One of the things I find when I go to pray is all that stuff I'd rather not look at about myself, my attitudes, some of that stuff that I keep hidden pretty much, what do I do? I get to my prayer and I sit down and I'm be, qu be quiet and I open my ego and all of this stuff comes out. It never fails that we see in our prayer where God is changing us and where God is asking us to, 
to let go. And Merton felt like if a person, if an activist or a person who is engaging in a prophetic lifestyle, he felt it was very important for that person to be aware of their own weaknesses and their own foibles. Except what happens if we don't is that we can project our unhealed stuff onto somebody else. That can be a dangerous thing, Merton felt. We needed to, um, the gospel says that it's easy to see what? The plank in the other person's eye? No, the splinter in the other person's eye and not see the plank in our own. That's what Merton was trying to help these people understand. If I am going to be about curing the world, I need to allow God to cure me. Otherwise, I'm engaged in an illusion. Pogo, Tom, uh, Merton would agree with Pogo, who said, we have met the enemy and they is us. And I remember my first grade teacher saying, uh, you know how, how, how kids are. She would say, well, you know, who, how did this happen? Who did this? And of course, we're all ready to do this. And she said, turn your hand over. How many po fingers are pointing at you? And I think those of us who are involved in justice movements, working to make the world a better place, need to realize that we have fingers pointing back at us. If we are pointing fingers at the world, if I am pointing fingers at Donald Trump or anybody else, I need to realize that I have some of that same woundedness in me. And it's only, because, it's only through God's mercy that any of this will be healed. So Merton would say, it's easy to contaminate our prophetic action if we are not people of prayer, deep people of prayer. <clears throat> he says this about um, um, about the way we look at the world. Where am I going to look for the world, first of all, if not in myself? The world is a complex of responsibilities made of the loves, the hates, the fears, the greed, the cruelty, the kindness, the trust, the suspicion of all. And I think this is a powerful statement. In the last analysis, if there is war because nobody trusts anybody, this is in part because I myself am defensive, suspicious, untrusting. <coughs> We need to name that in ourselves. That's what Merton meant by unmasking the illusions about myself as I am unmasking the illusions in the world. They both go together. One is never complete without the other. Very important for us who are, who are in this work. Any other questions, comments? <coughs> Um, 
inspired Donald Trump to pray deeply so he would never utter anything else about anyone or never blame anyone <coughs> about anything. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes. Well, at the same time that we are praying for the conversion of others, we need to be praying about our own conversion. We need to realize that I participate in that same what I don't like in the other person. Other people are great mirrors for us, aren't they? They do us a great service by showing us what's in ourselves. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. God is always trying to help us be more whole people. Yes? You mentioned that you might uh, share some books. Yes. If you don't know Merton, uh, the first book to start with would be uh, The Seven Story Mountain, the story of his conversion. And uh, he wrote a lot of journals and, uh, you know, his, he wrote just everything he thought practically and everything he felt. And he didn't pull any punches. And that's what I like about him is he's so conversational. I mean, you know who he really is. That would be a good one to start with. And uh, um, what's the other one? Oh, The Sign of Jonah is another lovely journal, just daily reflections. It's kind of like, you know, if you were writing a journal and you were just writing what's going on in your life and what you're thinking and what you're feeling and bringing God into the equation, that's what you get with Merton. That's what he's doing. And then if you want to get into something that's more uh, contemplative, New Seeds of Contemplation is a really good one. And uh, if you want to get into something that uh, speaks about his, what I was talking about with the contemplative and the prophetic, um, Henry Nowen has a wonderful book called, it has two, it was re, reissued with a new title, but I think the first title was The Contemplative Critic. And if you're interested in the connection between um, Thomas Merton and the Eastern religions, Zen, Buddhism, Hinduism, his Asian journals would be good. You know, he was very close with uh, many teachers of Zen. Thich Nhat Hanh was a very close personal friend of his. <coughs> he called him my brother, my brother Thich Nhat Hanh. So those would be some good ones, I think. Um, so if you wanted to, to, and another one on that, uh, in that area would be um, James Finley's The Palace, Merton's Palace of Nowhere, which talks about the true self, false self, and it gets into a lot of Jungian stuff, and I think it's powerful stuff. It's just wonderful. Uh, Merton's Palace of Nowhere, James Finley. He was a novice of Thomas Merton, so he... He had a, knew a lot of his teaching. Yes? I'm just like sitting here thinking about um, the balance of contemplation and action. And, and to think about there's certain communities where um, there's almost like not enough time to feel like they can contemplate. Mm -hmm. Like the other person's plank is stabbing my eye. <laughs> it's gotten that big. And, so I just like wonder, like it almost seems like as a person like myself, I have a privilege to be able to sit and contemplate before I go to work or after, you know, or <coughs> with my full-time job and money. And for mm -hmm. other people, when they're 
when the situation arises, I don't have, I'm react, I am reactionary. And so I, I guess I'm questioning, like, what would Thomas Martin say to those folks, you know, like when organic protests arise and it's a disaster, and it, I mean, there's no real, you know, mm -hmm. buffer between them and the, and the mm -hmm. experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then the other question I guess I'm contemplating thinking about is for the person who is like an atheist or agnostic or maybe spiritual, but they don't know, they don't pray, they don't contemplate, do they feel excluded then in this kind of conversation? I mean, I, I mean, I'm on board like as a person who believes so mm -hmm. like this is like the orientation of like what my heart is trying to go towards. But I'm just like, I just met a lot of people in these circles that are like, hey, I want to be able to take action and with churches, but not feel like I'm excluded because I don't pray and contemplate. Okay. Two, I think, two major questions. Your first one was how to live in a community that seems non-contemplative when you feel drawn to be contemplative, more contemplative. Is that? I guess. Yeah. I guess my kind first question is like, so an example like Ferguson, right? Or oh. I, I'm thinking in, in, in moments where protest arises out of uh, the exigency, the, the immediacy of it and trying to, how would you, like not, I mean that's a really, you know, mm -hmm. crass example, mm -hmm. but like, I'm just saying like, for some of these it communities, feels hopeless. the mm -hmm. evil is so apparent mm -hmm. on a day to day basis, mm -hmm. like I feel like I can be a person like, oh I have time to sit and contemplate and pray and center myself, but for some of these other communities, like they're just trying to have a job, they're trying to yes. um, put food on the table, and they don't have time to, sometimes I think, and I, I don't know, I'm just curious what time. hierarchy of needs Yes. And I do think that means there's more responsibility for those of us who feel called and who have, in some ways, the luxury of more, a more contemplative life. We need to take that opportunity and allow, because it's empowering for us and it does affect everything. And I also think about the people that, you know, we out there who we think are pretty uncontemplative. I just think God touches people beyond what we see. And I have been amazed at, like, even Ferguson, when I hear some of the people testifying about their experience out of that. People who live in terrible poverty and life seems pretty much drudgery. Just hearing them talk about their faith. I just think God finds a way to connect with us. That's, that's kind of my, my belief. Then what was the second question? I, I don't know if I even answered that. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just, it's probably more like I'm going to sit and process it later. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the other question was just like, yeah, in some of these like social justice circles are people who are, you know, they're just like, I'm, a, I'm an atheist. Like I, and so oh, like, yeah. is there a way for them to detach their ego or, you know what I mean, without, if they don't see the, the, the necess necessity of like prayer and contemplation, <coughs> if that makes sense. They're all walking around shining like the sun. You know, they all have the access to God within them, whether they know it or not. And I think God deals with us on a very intimate level and in a very unique way. So, um, I think it's up to the rest of us to be more inclusive and to be, you know, maybe to experience, to, I think with more engagement with people who are of different backgrounds, the more we can begin to understand just where God is 
working on their hearts, even though we may not say that, but we would be able to understand. What is it that, that brings these people to do loving things? There's something going on, you know? I, I kind of, is that, I'm not answering your questions very well, but those are mine. <laughs> I know my thoughts, anyway. We should have another dialogue. <laughs> and I am already over time. And um, this has been great. Thank you very much. I've appreciated being here. And uh, I hope you all get to know Thomas Merton. You will like him. Woo!